In the 1977 children's classic, Miss Nelson is Missing, uh, we read the story of a school teacher whose class is not obeying, her students don't listen. Any of you teachers ever have that issue? Right? Yeah, come on, right? And so she struggles day after day to get her students to listen, to pay attention. And so guess what happens? It's sometime along the, the course of the year, Miss Nelson doesn't show up. She goes missing. But in her place, shows up, as you can see on the screen there, Miss Viola, do you know her last name? Swamp. Miss Viola Swamp. Miss Viola Swamp, guess what? She is a rules and order lady. And she holds everything tight, just as it should be. Right? There are things in which now the students no longer have freedom to do. Why? Because she expects that they will respect and obey what she's trying to teach. The students are desperately looking for Miss Nelson. They go looking for her house, and one student even supposes that possibly a shark has swallowed her, but they're not sure. The students are hoping and begging that one day Miss Nelson might return, and in fact, that does happen. And what she finds is a classroom of students who are respectful and obedient. And the story ends with Miss Nelson back at her house, smiling with her hand over her face as you see the little black outfit that she's wearing hanging up in her closet. Now, I share that illustration this morning because one of my boys like that book. It's a book we read. And, but my guess is there may be some of you here that are trying to do that. You're trying to hide who you really are. And you think, listen... Just like Miss Nelson, maybe it can work to your advantage, and maybe it even has been. You've been trying to sub out some things in your life that maybe aren't as good, and so you've tried to stop cussing or be a better spouse or maybe quit going to those places or stop looking at this or that. You think if you do those things, then guess what? You're in. You're good. You believe that maybe even with your doing good that you can fool the world, maybe even the church. And some of you maybe are so deceived you believe you can fool God. But listen, that's really what the religions of the world are telling us, right? Here are the things that we must do to please God. They say, go here, don't say that, touch that, rub this, pray this, chant that. In all these other religions, we have this prophet, this sage, this wise person or whomever telling you, here's what you must do if you want to please God. If you want to experience the best afterlife or find nirvana or a better reincarnation or whatever you're hoping for. And yet the Bible shows us something quite contrary it shows god's son jesus coming and facing temptation as a man fully god fully man and guess what he actually passes he does for you what you could never do for yourself and the bible says that what jesus has done has now been credited to you by faith so that you can live knowing maybe this big idea today That your true identity is never in what I can do, but in what Jesus as my substitute has done for me. My true identity is never in what I can do, but in what Jesus as my substitute has done for me. Today we're going to set before us this idea that substitution is required. I don't know about you, but have you ever been a substitute before? Right? Maybe it was in teaching or maybe you were involved in some sports. I remember my sophomore years, 
Uh, Coach Gum, I see you back there. Coach, right? I was, I was hoping, right, for Jeff to put me in the game. Coach to put me in the game as a sophomore. And I'll never forget one of the first times as a sophomore, I got a chance to make the varsity go out on the floor and we're getting beat by like 20 or 30. But man, my buddies in the crowd break out like we were going to Sweet 16. They're like, Jesse, Jesse. I'm like, dude, we're getting beat. It was this embarrassing moment, right? I'm just like, dude, I'm a scrub. I'm playing like the last few minutes because we're getting blown out and there's no chance, right? But some of you, listen, I don't know what you're experience has been like but you probably had moments as a substitute when maybe things haven't gone well but today's text shows us a different kind of substitute one in which you need one in which i need and this definition of substitution being required begins to set us on this path of asking questions like this is god really serious about me living a godly life what does my struggle with sin really reveal And if it reveals what I might think, is there any hope for me? So let's get after today. We're going to pick back up Matthew chapter 3. We've been working our way through the book of Matthew. And and so we last left off talking about what was true repentance. And we saw John the Baptist baptizing people. And the text now picks up verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. Maybe saying this first truth before us. That righteousness is demanded. Righteousness, holiness, godliness is demanded pick up if you would begin in verse 13 then jesus came from galilee to the jordan to john to be baptized by him john would have prevented him saying i need to be baptized by you did you come to me but jesus answered him let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us or maybe some translations you might have might render it thus it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness Then he consented. Now listen, this is a challenging passage. You may be wondering, why is Jesus, right? Because, I mean, you may be thinking, dude, listen, I don't maybe know everything about the Bible, but I know that the Bible teaches that Jesus had never sinned. And so, like, why is he coming to experience a baptism of repentance? And what I would tell you is, if you're wondering that, that's a really good question. Why? Because in verse 14, John's wondering the exact same thing, isn't he? That's exactly what he's wondering, right? I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Now, it's interesting what happens in Matthew 3. Right, because John has just set before us the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, listen, don't think that you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you from these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. He's warning them, listen, don't take this baptism lightly. You're not worthy of this baptism. You think that you're already pre-qualified. And now he comes to Jesus saying, listen, it's not that you're unworthy of baptism. I'm not even worthy to baptize you. It's like this amazing flip that's happened in the midst of Matthew 3. But we need to ask, right, like, why is this happening? Look what Jesus answers. It's important. Verse 15, if you're trying to figure out why is this taking place, Jesus answers him, let it be so now, right, again, here's just one of these simple translations helping you understand, for, here's why, thus it is what? It's fitting, right? Some translations render it, it is necessary. Necessary for what? Jesus, look what he does. Another four, right? These, again, they're just interpretive clues to help you break a sentence down to understand it. I hope that it shows you from the text how I'm arriving at my conclusions, but I also hope that it takes you home that you can study God's word for yourself. For thus, it is fitting, and here's why, four, he says, to fulfill all what? Righteousness. See it? This is fulfilling all righteousness. So we need to ask the question then, does Jesus, does this baptism make Jesus righteous? No. Well, then why is he doing it? And I'll be really honest with you. I truly don't understand it fully. 
I've spent a lot of time studying this, a lot of cats that are a lot smarter than me, and I'm hearing them, guess what? They're disagreeing on exactly why is Jesus doing this. But I want to give you my best effort of trying to explain why is Jesus doing this and what does he actually mean by this fulfilling all righteousness. Here's what I think. Here's what I believe based upon what's happening in the Old Testament coming now into the New Testament with Jesus. Is that Jesus is, in fact, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right? We studied that. We walked through the book of Isaiah. And listen to what happens here. It's interesting. Let's walk through it just for a moment. Verse 16 to 17 of Jesus' baptism here in Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw something, right? The Spirit of God descends like a dove and came to what? It rests on him. And now secondly, watch what happens second. Behold, we have now a voice. The voice is from where? It's from heaven. It says something, a declaration, right? It says, this is who? This is my beloved son. Then a third thing now happens. He says further about this one, with whom I am what? Well, please. It's interesting that I think Matthew is showing us something. Remember, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, people who would have understood the Old Testament scriptures well. My guess is if you're like me, you don't understand the real Old Testament scriptures that well. So we need to really look and say, okay, what might Matthew be showing us here? Look what he would, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Again, this idea of the suffering servant of who Jesus is. Behold, listen to what it says in verse 1 of Isaiah 42. He calls him my what? My servant. Now, back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, we heard him called the son, right? But again, what we're starting to see is the son is actually the servant, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the servant. Look what he says here. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom what? My soul delights. That delighting is the indication that, guess what? He's actually the one with whom God is well pleased. See the fulfillment starting to happen. Third, look what happens the third thing. Again, our third working through the baptism of Jesus, trying to understand what does he mean by fulfill all righteousness? Who is he trying to tell us he is? I have put my what? Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, guess what we have at Jesus' baptism? Who descended upon Jesus and came to rest on him? The Spirit of God. Right? So now as we look just through this one verse of Isaiah 42, we start to see that, guess what? Jesus is, in fact, the suffering servant of Isaiah. We start to see his true identity. And guess what do we know about the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah? He comes to be the substitute for the people. So we start to see that what Matthew is going to show us here in the midst of Jesus' baptism is you have one that is now stepping in your place. One who is representing you before God. Even though he has no sin of his own, he's going, being baptized, stepping into your place. Why? Because ultimately he'll go to the cross, not dying for his own sin, but who? I heard somebody say mine. That's right. You better make it real personal. That's your sin on the cross, beloved. This is the sinless son of God, the servant of God from Isaiah 42. This is that servant. Why is he coming to do it? Why? Why is this happening? Remember back in verse 15, he said this was fulfill all righteousness. There's a need of fulfillment. It's necessary. Some translations render it. Why? Holiness is demanded. God is serious about our sin. It separates. It divides us from a holy God, not just temporarily, but forever. Thus, it seems that Jesus is indeed stepping in our place, undergoing this baptism of repentance as our substitute. And maybe you need to ask a question now. Well, do I really need a substitute? Am I called to really live this holy or righteous life? Who says I haven't? 
Well, I want to maybe set this before you today. We've all fallen in the wilderness. We've all fallen to temptation and tests and trials. We're all guilty here today. Texts like Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 and Exodus 17, they kind of set before us this, this statement of who the people of Israel are. Right? You remember the people of Israel, they spent 400 years in, in where? Do you remember? Slavery, Egyptian bondage, and God delivers them out, right? All these plagues, and He parts the Red Sea, and they go, and they're to go in the promised land, but they, they see all of these people, right? I mean, the descendants of Anak are there, right? The Nephilim, of you've got giants there, there's no way. So they don't think God's faithful, even though He's delivered them out of all of this. And so now they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's this moment of testing. They go through all these trials there. And maybe one of the trials is this. Will you obey God? Israel, will you obey God? Look what Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us. Verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why has God allowed this to happen? That, look what he says there, that he might humble you, testing you to know what's God want to know. What's in your heart? The testing is to reveal what is actually in your heart. This question, will you obey God? Some of you need to answer now. Are you obeying God? Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. This is important, right? So understanding where we're getting ahead in Matthew 3 or Matthew 4. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Again, here we have another that. That he might make you know that man does what? Not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? There's, there's something to our lives, right? And Jesus is saying, listen, as he comes on the scene, I'm the one that is coming to fulfill all righteousness. And the text is reminding all of us, the people of Israel have failed. Will they obey God? The truth is they haven't. They don't obey. God found out what was in their heart. Guess what? When they were tempted and they gave in, they don't really want to obey God. And if you're really honest today, if we looked at temptation that you struggle with, we'd probably find the very same thing. That you and I haven't obeyed God. Secondly, not only the question of will you obey God, but they need to ask the question, will you trust God? Not only will you obey, but will you trust God? And listen, we pick up there in Exodus chapter 17. It talks about the people, right? They're, they're moving. And, and verse 1 says that they come to a place where there's no water for the people to drink. Right? They're desperate. They're thirsty. They yell at Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why are you upset with me? Why do you what? Test the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why would you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cries out to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord says to Moses, listen, pass on before the people. Take some of the elders of Israel with you and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall what? It's going to come out and the people will drink. And Moses did so on the side of the elders of Israel. And then we have this little epitaph to finish out the passage. Verse 7 of Exodus 17. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because, listen what they've done, they tested the Lord by saying, what are they saying? Is the Lord what? Among us or not? God, if you actually are with us, prove it. 
And that is, listen, according to the Word of God, they want proof that God actually cares for them and loves them. And the proof that God is actually there is if He provides water. Listen, you may not be trying to get God to prove that He loves you and cares for you by providing water, but my guess is, if you're anything like me, you've been putting God to the test. Because God, if you're really God, then you'll heal so-and-so. God, if you're really God, then you'll fix this in my, in my relationships. God, if you're really God, then you're going to do this for me. And God, if you're really God, then I'll do, then you'll do this. And God, if you do that, then I'll do this. Or God, you ought to do that because I've been doing this like, we just find all kinds of ways to test God, don't we? And the truth is, in the wilderness of your life, you've failed that test too, just like me and just like the people of Israel. The third question to them is this. Will you worship God? It's not only will you obey God, not only will you trust God, but will you worship God? Deuteronomy chapter 6 records for us, as God tells them, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God who you shall fear. Him shall, you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after what? Other gods. The gods of the peoples who are around you. For, here's why you shouldn't do that, right? For, the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The truth of the Old Testament is even though God had done so much for them, just like he's done so much for you and I, we still find ourselves, our heart is full of idolatry and we go after and love and worship all these other things. Can I get a witness? So three commands and three times the people of Israel rebel. Three tests, three failures. The people of Israel need rescuing. And whether you and I realize it or not too, we also need rescuing. A few weeks back in a publication for the Baptists, it's called the Western Recorder. I don't know if you know it or not, but it's a publication for Baptists. And, and they share stories and different things. You can find it online. Just search Western Recorder. They store, told a story of a man who didn't think he had any need of Jesus. Maybe you're there today. You just hear this and you think, man, that's not about me. I want to share with you just briefly his story. It's the conversion of his man by the name of John Taylor. He became a giant amongst Baptists, specifically Baptists here in Kentucky. He helped form the Long Run and the Elkhorn Baptist Associations. Local churches, right, that were around this area are established as this man comes to preach. It's been said about him, there may be no man in Kentucky who wielded a greater influence for good. But as amazing as the finishing of his life is, there's some, some important truths about his life. And specifically about how he became born again or received Christ as his Lord and Savior. John Taylor was born on a family, in, a farm in Virginia in 1752. He was working hard, and, but liked to play hard as well, as we might say. There was a time in which another Baptist preacher, William Marshall, was going about speaking in a nearby abandoned church. And he decided to go with his friend, Thomas Buck. And he's there and, and he records these words. He later said that he had no more concern for his soul than the horse he rode upon. At first, Taylor isn't even interested in the sermon until he notices his friend, Thomas Buck, weeping beside him and crying out to God for mercy. Taylor decides to listen more carefully. And as Marshall thunders out the word of God, the, his, the conviction of the Holy Spirit convicts Taylor. He says later his heart was touched with a dagger. For the first time, Taylor realizes he is a sinner under the condemnation of God. But rather than trust God, he returns home determined to reform his life. 
Changes start being made. He before was a notorious gambler and a brawler. He quits doing these things. He even begins reading the Bible. But nothing really changes until a year later. Taylor goes now to hear one of his buddies preach, a child he had grown up with, Joseph Redding. The message emphasized the absolute necessity of the new birth as well as the depravity of the human heart. The sermon, spoke, according to Taylor, hit him like a sledgehammer. It's the prophet who says, your word is like a hammer hitting the hard places of my heart. Taylor later wrote, the goodness I had thought of before was blown out as with a puff. He realized there was, his heart was full of darkness and evil. But instead of turning to Christ, he went home depressed and alone. For months, Taylor could not eat or sleep. He knew that his sins would condemn him and he knew God was just in his condemnation. But he still refuses to come to Christ. Finally, Taylor decides that he'll just end his life. He finds an abandoned mountain that's near his home. It's called Hanging Rock. And he goes there intending that either he will take his life or God will strike him dead. But as the time comes, something changes for John Taylor. He began to think on the grace and the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. In his own words, he says this, I now began to cry again for mercy as the great grace in Christ had brought possible salvation to such a wretched sinner as myself. I believe I shall never forget the hanging rock while I live nor even in heaven. In 1783, John Taylor will begin as he begins to preach the God gospel. He moves to Kentucky and it's here until 1833 that he goes throughout Kentucky and even these areas in which you and I so frequent preaching the gospel of God as hundreds are converted. Let it be a reminder to us all today that God can use any man or woman anywhere, anytime. And where you have been does not disqualify you from where God may take you tomorrow. Hallelujah. It is the greatness of God. And so today I compel you, listen, you are not good enough on your own. Just like John Taylor, you cannot conform your life. You cannot do enough good things to get you in the grace of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that anyone will be saved. Hallelujah. It's the good news of the gospel. And Matthew now moves to show us that Jesus overcomes temptation as my substitute. I want you to pay attention right here because this is a game changer for you. Right? Again, not being a Jewish audience, as we are not, we're just not prone to think these ways. We need to think this, right? This is important, right? It's a game changer. I want you to zone in for a moment. So listen, Matthew's going to show us that Jesus is our substitute, and he's going to show us how he truly overcomes. Walk me wood, beginning here back. Remember the text, all right? So Jesus is baptized, and something interesting happens, right? Immediately it says he goes up out of the water, Okay? Spirit of God descends, God affirms his, him as his son. And then look what happens, Matthew records this. Then, right, immediately following this, something takes place. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right, this is amazing moment that Matthew's trying to show us, listen, something's happening. Right, I mean, because listen, now Jesus is going, walking into the wilderness, led by the Spirit to be what? To be tempted. In the wilderness, tempted? Who's that sound like? Israel. Guess what happens? Remember his baptism? He came up out of the water. Guess who came out of the water? The people of Israel, didn't they? The Red Sea's parted. They come out of the water. And guess what? They end up finding themselves in the wilderness to be tempted. Something's happening here. Matthew's trying to show you and I about Jesus' true identity, that he is the true Israel. Look, he's already been doing it in just small ways. We may have missed past it, but I encourage you just to slow down just for a moment so that you might see this. Look back in Matthew chapter 2. Remember, the wise men have shown up and Jesus has been born and the wise men want to have, or Herod wants to have Jesus killed. 
the angel of the Lord comes in verse 14 and he warns there in verse 13. It says, and then Joseph rose and took the child and Mary, his mother, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was, notice this statement, this is very important. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by whom? The prophet. And the statement is this, out of Egypt, what? I call my son. This is important. Why? Look me in the wood. This is the citing of Hosea 11 and 1. When Israel, notice who it is speaking of there, Israel was a child. I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Notice what Hosea is talking about. Hosea is talking about the people of Israel ethnically, right? The group of Israel. And now Matthew says something seemingly preposterous to us. He says to us that the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 wasn't in fact the people of Israel being called out of Egypt. It was a greater one. It's this one. It is Jesus, the Son of God, who is the fulfillment of the prophet being called out of Egypt. Why? Because Jesus is the true Israel. Do you see it? This is a game changer. Why? Because if you don't see this, you won't understand how he acts as their substitute and you will not understand how he becomes your substitute. Matthew wants you and I to see the true Israel has now come on the scene. He's come out of the water. He's now been led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And now he will fast for 40 days and 40 nights and be tempted by the devil. And the question that Israel is wanting to know, will he pass the test? And you must know this. Will he pass the test? So look at me if you would. Matthew chapter 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's this amazing moment of, of just Jesus setting before us to answer the question, Will you obey God? The same question that Israel had been asked, right, with the manna in the wilderness. Will you obey God? And the question is, will Jesus, who is fully God, will he use his divine power to satisfy his own needs? Satan seems to be saying to him, again, this statement right here, it's it's kind of a curious one. But he says, if you are the son of God, right, there's some question of exactly what is Satan saying, right? It, It sure seems to be that he's saying maybe since you are the son of God, but there's a sense in which he's questioning. Prove it. Show us that you're the son of God. Are you really? Right? I mean, this, this question of if you are the Son of God, then surely you can satisfy yourself. And Jesus quotes from, guess what? A wilderness passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He does it all throughout this text. He quotes from the, the wilderness passages to tell you all the true Israel has come. And he's standing in the place. He is the ultimate substitute. And it's this great moment. Our identity as God's children does not... Listen, listen. So often we may think our identity as God's child gives us the right to live any way we want. And Jesus says that's not in fact the case. That's the way that the Israel lived before. But the true Israel, the true Israel will obey God. Even though they may think they had this freedom. Why? Because, I mean, some, as Paul said, have been blasphemy accusing us of saying... Why don't we just go on sinning that grace might increase? Paul says, God forbid. We've died to sin. How should we live any longer? Some of you, listen, you are abusing the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God by continuing in sin and not repenting. 
Do not abuse the grace and the mercy of God. Jesus Himself here as the Son of God does not use His own rights, but instead He obeys His Father. It is good news. Why? Because we all, like Israel, have taken that bait and Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. It's this amazing moment of who He is as our substitute. Standing in our place. When you and I so many times, listen, we have given in even though we know what the Word of God says. And then, this is the beauty of this today. This is the beauty of this. That even though you and I have willingly and knowingly rejected this Word, there is a substitute that dies in your place that you can have hope today. That you can have freedom today. You don't have to be defined by all of your sin and failure and mistakes. Today, will you repent and believe upon the name of Christ? It's this hope of the gospel. This one that's standing in our place as our substitute. And he is obeying God when you and I and Israel did not. The second question that we already posed for Israel is, will you trust God? Not only will you obey God, but will you trust God? That's the very same question that Jesus gets in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Look what he says. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan citing scripture. Jesus says to him, Again, it is written. Look what he does again. He returns back to the word of God, submitting himself to the word of God. Listen to that. That is your master. This is the one that you are to imitate. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God, what? To the test. Satan takes the scripture and tries to bait Jesus in. He says, if God really cares for you, then let him prove it. Let him show it. Throw yourself down. Why? Because the Scripture has already said He will not allow your foot to strike a stone. The angels will bear you up. And listen, oftentimes if you're not careful, Satan will come in and he will will abuse and manipulate the Word of God in your life to say, you know what, God really just wants you happy. He will lead you astray. Listen, right? I mean, the people of of, of Israel in the Old Testament, it, it was a statement of this. If God really cares for you, He'd provide water. I mean, you listen, many of us, we've been there. You had those thoughts, haven't you? Satan tempting you. If God really loved you, then, then why did he let this happen? If God really loves you, then why doesn't he heal your child? Or maybe you think that as a Christian that God will help you and always provide for you. So you just assume there's no real need maybe to get a job or ever work. You just let the Lord provide. Or maybe you think the government should, right? Because like, well, God will provide for me. And we take these scriptures, right? And we just try to twist them, all of us, to our own end, We've all failed this test, beloved. We have all failed this test. But beloved, praise God, there is a substitute who is standing in your place. He is taking the test for you. And He passes. This is the hope of the Gospel. It's this beautiful moment. Right? I mean, it's this moment of even when it appears that Scripture says that God should have already taken care of that situation, that He would do this or that for His people and He hasn't done it for you yet. The battle still rages. I want you to know because of Christ, you can keep trusting God. Continue trusting Him. So not only will you obey God, not only will you trust God, the third, the third test that Jesus experiences is this. Will you worship only God? Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship 
me. It's this unbelievable moment. And Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You see that three times when he just comes anchoring back in God's word. When's the last time you faced temptation and you said, for it is written? For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. A beautiful moment of Jesus standing there and answering the question, will he worship only God? Satan is trying to get him to bypass the cross, to have the world, to have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. As it like, you don't have to take it that serious. You don't have to really come and die. Right? And you, listen, we had that similar Satan baiting us. You don't have to really die to yourself. You don't really have to deny yourself that. You don't really think that God would want you to give up that. You don't really think that God... Take the easy path, he says, not that path. Don't die. Don't give your life up for those people. Give your life up for somebody like Blake Jesse. A sexually immoral, gambling, prideful, arrogant man who's consumed with the kingdom of the world, who listens to all kinds of junk daily, who is so prideful and arrogant, and that man, you're going to die for him? Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrated His love for me, for me, in this. And while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, beloved. That is my story. That is my song. That there's a Savior who would die for me, not when I cleaned up my life enough, but in the midst of my sin. Beloved, do you know that Savior? Have you experienced that kind of peace? being forgiven of every test you fail, every moment of temptation you've given into, every indulgence, everything you're ashamed of today. It is Christ bearing our shame and guilt upon the cross. It's a beautiful moment. Oh, man. I'll leave you with three things. Maybe how do we fight temptation, right? I mean, listen. The temptation maybe is to take this text, the temptation, that's part of the pun. The temptation is maybe to take this text and to say, okay, how do I overcome sin? If you take that interpretation of this scripture, then every single one of us walk out of this building as a failure because we have all failed the test again and again and again and again. But if we see in this text that there is a substitute who dies in our place, I now have freedom. I have joy to give him my life, to lay down, to not be ashamed when I come with my sin and my rebellion and my disobedience and my hard heart and the way I treat my children, the way I talk to my wife, my judgmental thoughts, my moments of weakness and rebellion and disobedience because he's my substitute beloved i don't have to hide some of you are hiding in the garden you're shamed i want you to know that he came and took that shame on the cross hear him in the garden calling you where are you look upon the sun today so in response to jesus as my substitute temptation and sin is now different for me and you and all who are the true Israel. Not ethnic Israel. I'm not saying we're ethnic. But we've been grafted in, as Paul says, into the true root is Christ. So first, how do you fight temptation? Number one, resist the devil. That's what Christ is doing. He's resisting the devil. James 4 and 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
You see, it starts with submission. That's what he's doing. He's submitting himself under the truth of the Word of God. Listen to this. This is If you say, Blake, listen, uh, maybe I'm really struggling with the area of sin in my life. I encourage you, memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you or seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let what? You be tempted, what? Beyond your ability. Hallelujah. That's good news for a weak man like me. Beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also what? He provides the way out, beloved, the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So listen, beloved, I want you to know that that temptation is not too much. If you are in Christ, I want you to know you have the power to resist the evil one. Not by yourself. That brings our second point. But in the power of the Spirit. Right? Did you notice Jesus? He went and led by the Spirit. The Spirit had descended on Him. Beloved, do you know that if you have repented and believed like Mason Milby, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit that lives and indwells in Christ is the one that indwells and lives inside of you. To overcome in the power of the Spirit. Listen, that's just a quick text. Romans 8 and 13. So we resist the devil in the power of the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see it? It's by the Spirit that you live, beloved. It's the power of the Spirit to overcome temptation. So we fight temptation by resisting the devil in the power of the Spirit. Thirdly and last, through submission to the Word of God. You kept hearing Jesus, right? Three different times. It is written. It is written. It is written. He keeps going back to God's Word as His source of truth and authority. And listen, it's not just that He knows God's Word. He's submissive and obedient to God's Word. You can know God's Word all day long. Are you submissive and obedient to it? That's why we fight temptation. We resist the devil and the power of the Spirit through submission to the Word of God. And we hear texts like Psalm 119.11. I have stored your Word in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Storing God's Word there, empowering you and I, beloved, to not get in. So listen, it's the good news today. The wilderness of your and my life will always reveal that we will never pass the test well enough. We have all failed that test. But praise God, there is a substitute. Hallelujah. His name is Jesus, the true Son of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the fulfillment of Hosea 11 and 1. He is the one true living God who took on flesh, who lived a sinless life, who faced temptation in every way, Hebrews says, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, he dies not for his own sin, beloved, but for yours, for mine. John whispers to us for the sins of the whole world that all might come in. Today, have you received forgiveness? Are you trying to be good enough? You need a substitute, beloved. His name is Jesus. Today, will you come submitting? Maybe you're struggling with sin. Will you come submit yourself to the Lord? Resisting the devil in the power of the Spirit. Submitting yourself to the Word of God. Beloved, in the power of the Spirit for the glory of Christ, you and I can overcome the sin that entangles you. It does not have to have the last word. It does not have to have victory. Christ has overcome. It is for freedom, Galatians 5 says, that He has come to set you and I free. Today, would you come for freedom? I pray it in Jesus' name you would. Father, in the strong name of Christ, I pray, Father God, that you would let us see the glory of our substitute. 
that today we would not leave here thinking, I've got to somehow overcome sin on my own. It will never happen. But Lord, today would we come just raising our hands and bowing our knees, saying, praise God for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, now in response to you dying in our place, might we be able to say with Paul as we close, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For the glory of Christ, would you save and set people free and would you bring holiness to your church? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.